I would privilege the parts of conversation that aren't about how hot Ruben is, maybe. I mean. <laughs> but it's, it's important. A- Hi, I'm Rachel Handler, and welcome to Lady Problems. Normally, every Thursday, me and a rotating crew of ladies look at the way pop culture treats women with the women who make pop culture. But we put a rush on this week's episode because today, Wednesday, March 8th, is the International Women's Day Strike. So you can listen to this as you paint your sign and get ready to march and let everyone know what a day without women's labor feels like. This week, my co-hosts are Teo Bugby. Hello, Teo. Hi. And Hazel Sills. Hi, Hazel. Hi. We're going to go back in time and talk about labor trailblazer slash movie star Olivia de Havilland, who also happens to be one of the narrators of the new FX TV show Feud. We'll delve into that show as well, which has a strange way of looking at aging women. And later, it's the return of our segment called Fucked Up in a Good Way, Movie About Women of the Week. We'll talk about the 1979 classic Norma Rae, where Sally Field kicks ass unionizing a textile factory in North Carolina. Onwards, comrades. There's a new TV show called Feud, uh, and it follows the fraught relationship between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, who were these two golden age Hollywood legends. And the show follows them on the set of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. It's a Ryan Murphy show, which means it is relatively ham-fisted, in my opinion, and uh, shot through with strains of casual sexism, as is his way. So we're going to get to Feud, but first we're going to talk about the little-known history of the narrator, one of the narrators of Feud, Olivia de Havilland. Teo, take it away. Sure. So Olivia de Havilland was also a Golden Age Hollywood actress. She was an often often a co-star of Betty Davis, actually, because they were working for many years at Warner Brothers. And basically, while she was working at Warner Brothers, she filed a lawsuit that became one of the most important lawsuits in Hollywood history, which was filed 50 years exactly to the day before my birthday. So <laughs> good on you, Olivia. Um, she did it for you. <laughs> she did it ex- specifically for me, yes. Um, so yeah, basically before this law, basically before this lawsuit, um, the way the Hollywood system worked was that it was sort of like a draconian, like extended indentured servitude, but for millionaires, um, where people would sign a contract when they were very, very young, and then you were kept in that contract for insane periods of time because the studio was basically able to say that any day that you weren't working didn't count towards the like fulfillment of the time in your contract. So you either had to be working literally every day of the 365 days in a year, oh. or you would have to wait out the end. And so basically, Olivia de Havilland filed this lawsuit to get out of her contract with Warner Brothers and to like be able to like renegotiate and work as an independent contractor. So wait, so is this including weekends? That's the important question. I don't think it included weekends or holidays. Okay. But basically, so it's different with actors. So like if we were working, we work five days a week. But like if you're an actor and you're on a set, that set, like your set experience might only last for maybe a month at a time. And then you have to book another movie. And there's an in-between time between like the time that you're working on a project and then your next project. And so basically what the studios were saying was that that didn't count. Like any time that you spent like not 
like physically on set or involved in a production in some way because it also applied to directors and writers. Um, anytime that you weren't working was kaput and didn't count. So like they would basically, what if there was no movie for, for you to work on? Then you were stuck in your contract. So you just like sit around yeah. and do nothing. Well, and that was part of what they would do to people. So like one of the ways that they would punish people for um, turning in material that was too political or for... I don't know, various kinds of misbehavior if you had like a, an alcohol problem or a drug problem or whatever. One of the things that they would do was basically prevent you from working. And so you were stuck in this contract and unable to look for work in any other place. However, you like were also at the beck and call of the studios who weren't giving you work. So that's why there's always like old-timey women lounging around in nightgowns because they were just they waiting They were just, up. like, smoking cigarette <laughs> yeah. after cigarette <laughs> in their giant houses. Yeah. By a, everyone had a pool. Exactly. Right? That's the exact image. Yeah. <laughs> Very luxurious. I know that's the opposite of the point, but it sounds like a, like a luxe life. Yeah. Did her career sort of, you know, bounce back or get oh, better she, way after the lawsuit? She was, at the time that she filed the lawsuit, this was another one of the reasons why she's, like, kind of, she's very well respected. It was at the height of her career. So she had been signed in the mid-30s, and, like, through the end of the 30s and into the 19, early 1940s, she was, like, one of the biggest dramatic actresses in Hollywood. And so she filed at, like, a very lucrative time in her career, and then afterwards, like, won a bunch of Oscars and, you know, continued what was a very... Um, well-respected career as a as a dramatic actress in Hollywood. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it was just, like, a continuation, although she does get a lot of standing ovations now as, like, an old person when she shows up at the Oscars. I can't believe she's still alive. She I, is a thousand years insane. old. insane. <laughs> I will say, like, I when I was applying for my job at the Dissolve, I wrote, one of my writing tests was to write her obituary, and this was, like, two years ago, maybe? <laughs> Sorry, Olivia, but I've written your obituary. It happens. But, yeah, you, have so, to, yeah. I, you gotta have it. So, yeah, I think just think it's crazy, because they were like, oh, like, she's probably the next person that will die but she's still fucking alive she's going she's going for it yeah and i know this doesn't just apply to the movie business it also applies to music right hazel yeah so uh a lot of musicians who are sort of stuck in their contracts uh talk about the seven-year rule or the Havilland law to try to get out of their contracts but um actually under california law there was an amendment made to the the seven-year uh law in 1987 so it excluded recording artists um, from that law. So they don't have the same privileges under that law as um, movie stars. So if you want to get out of your contract, you actually have to pay damages to the label because the way music labels still work is that you sign on for a certain number of albums and whether or not those albums, like you complete all those albums within seven years, it really doesn't matter. Um, and a good example of that is Rita Ora, who, like, her time had extended beyond, with Rock Nation, had extended beyond um, seven years, and she had only released one album, and she was like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> I, she was like, I've been recording all this material, and you're not letting me release another album, and she was going to sue Rock Nation, and they ended up settling it with her. Um, and the opposite of that is Kesha, who is trapped in her deal with Sony, and she still has a lot more albums left to release in her contract. She has, like, six more albums, mm -hmm. and obviously it has been longer than seven years. So she is trying to uh, bring up the seven years law in order to get out of her contract, but 
Sony is saying, we've put so much money into your career. We've put millions of dollars into your career. It doesn't matter if it's been seven years. Like, at the end of the day, you still owe us more albums. So basically this amendment that was made to the de Havilland Law in 1987 has, like, still completely fucked over musicians. And every time they try to say, like, what about this law? Um, Either they are still stuck in their contract like Kesha or it's basically settled in court. Hmm. So it's it's pretty weird. That sucks. Kesha should be the next Olivia de Havilland and fucking fix it. I honestly, like, when you were talking about it, I was like, she might be because it's still, like— the studio system, obviously, that, like, monopolized studio system obviously doesn't exist in Hollywood anymore. But it still kind of exists in the music industry. Hazel, have there been any, like, female musician strikes or, like, musicians stri- in general striking against this kind of thing or not really? Uh, I don't think there's there's been any – I don't think there's been any strikes, but I need to fact check that. I did <laughs> not get, prepare that information <laughs> for that question. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I do think the Kesha – the Kesha incident. Um, obviously, it's not just her dispute with her label. It's also the fact that her abuser, Dr. Luke, her alleged abuser, mm-hmm. Dr. Luke, <laughs> thank you, um, is a huge part of uh, her deal at Sony. And there's there's no way that he can't benefit from the from her releasing albums on it. So obviously, there's a long way to go in terms of you know making these contracts actually work out for the artists who wind up signing. But I think one thing that we should keep in mind, like moving forward, is just to be aware of the way in which women's art is also the function of women's labor. And like there is a history of women changing the way that these industries function. Yeah, totally. Thank you, Taya. I feel very educated now. So educated. So we should all strike. <laughs> yes. Let's leave right now. Yeah. Let's go Bye. and leave. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> I wouldn't do that to Kasha. <laughs> We'll be back with more Lady Problems after this ad. Yeah, so now we're going to talk about uh, Ryan Murphy's feud, which, as I said, uh, is about Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. And it stars Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lange. And our coworker, Ingu Kang, wrote a piece on it on MTV.com slash news this week. Uh, Teo, do you want to tell us about it? Sure. So Ingu spoke to a film critic and film writer, Farron Smith-Nemi, who is amazing, and she knows everything about every movie that's ever been made ever and loves old Hollywood specifically. So they had, like, a really fantastic conversation about Feud and about specifically Betty Davis and Joan Crawford's careers and sort of Farron's opinions on how realistic the show is or what her thoughts were on the direction that Ryan Murphy has taken with it. And I thought it was like a really interesting discussion for our podcast because, you know, one of the things that Farron talks about is just the way in which women's lives get sort of flattened down into like the most digestible, but also weirdly like the most cliched bits. Mm -hmm. So she says that, you know, Ingu asked her, you don't, do you think that they spent as much time as they do on the show complaining about their looks? And she's like, well, yeah, sure, sometime, I imagine. But <laughs> they also did other things and had <laughs> other conversations, I would hope, right. because otherwise life would be so fucking boring. And these were not boring women. Right. Yeah, I just feel like watching the show, the thesis was so ham-fisted. Like, the thesis was like, here are these women. They're not getting 
they're not getting roles anymore or the same roles that they did when they were younger and more beautiful and didn't have to worry about the wrinkles on their elbows. Uh, um, and like uh, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis are coming together to make this this movie with strong, complex, you know, roles for women their age. And, you know, every I feel like every single line of the show kind of drove that home. Like, you know, I deserve more as an older woman in Hollywood. And it just it took me out of the show almost and it kept I kept wondering is this how it really was 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 their decision to make this movie that politicized or is that Ryan Murphy's take today and he's just applying that to because it feels like a very contemporary issue yeah it feels like retroactive like it's like a hindsight 2020 type thing where he's like imagine like if they had been making this today like the conversation we would have been having about it on Twitter you know like it's just I totally agree with you and it does feel very like Everything hues to that exact thesis, and there's really no bound. Like outside of that, they don't do very much. And especially, I'm thinking about that the pilot, the at the dinner scene at the end with those three women like sitting around and like not eating dessert, all wearing black. Mm-hmm. And like I get what he's going for, but that it was just such like a solemn and like depressing dinner scene. And I was like, these these bitches would be having way more fun at this dinner. It's also just like there's no subtext, right? Literally every thought and every. Every single thing that anyone could even unconsciously experience in life has to be said exactly, specifically to, like, the person that they're having those feelings about. So it's, like, Joan Crawford sitting in her dressing room being like, I just want Betty to tell me that I'm a good actress. (laughs) (laughs) Right, I just want her respect. I just want her respect. And then, like, ten minutes later, Betty Davis is like, you're a good actress. Right. Yeah, I also thought Nemi made a point in the in the interview about how uh, Bet and Jane just seem so, Bet Betty and Joan just seem so mopey, mm-hmm. and I thought the scene in the uh, in the pilot where they're watching back their takes from uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane, and like Joan is really upset that the that the lighting is so harsh, and Betty is crying at the <laughs> at her character, right? And I thought this is just so bizarre like especially because you know the story goes that Betty uh developed her own look for the movie and they're making a horror movie where they're both kind of women who are in peril and sort of grotesque and it's very dramatic and scary and I I think that they would have understood what the movie was going to end up being because they seemed so game to make this movie. That was their idea. Yeah, so why? I'm like, (laughs) you're in a horror movie and you're playing this crazed villain. Why are you crying at at your appearance on screen? I know, it was very weird. It's also just, even if you were upset at the way that you appeared, would Betty Davis cry in front of another person in... A scr- like, she would have been going to those dailies every day on every movie she ever made. Right. Like, that's, like, a very basic, like, requirement of what your job was then. I just don't see <laughs> – I don't see that being her, her natural reaction. It's just this weird convenience. But then at the same time, it's the weird convenience of storytelling, but it's bad storytelling. Like, it's not interesting storytelling. Yeah. I mean, to get to give Ryan Murphy, like, some credit, obviously the O.J. miniseries was great. Um but I think about all the stuff he's working on right now, <laughs> and I get really stressed out for him. Like, I'm sure that he's not giving us his best work. I can't fathom how he could be writing, like, 16 seasons of every one of his little miniseries at once. And he, he gets right. I'm sure he doesn't write everything by himself. But still, like, 
you know, to his credit, he does give roles to a lot of women. He brought he brought Sarah Paulson back. Like, he knows what's up. But, like, at the same time, I think he needs to just give up some of the control to some other people. I think what's frustrating for me with Ryan Murphy is that, like, <laughs> he has good taste in things that I want and bad taste in how to give me the things that I want. <laughs> You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. (laughs) Right. Like, American Horror Story is, like, my dream show in theory. Yeah. I'm, like, amazing. But it's not—I can never watch it. Yeah. The second season is so good. Oh, my God. The second season is amazing. Yeah. But that's it. And Coven was pretty good. I liked Coven. But but it's—right. Every time I'm like, how is someone putting a horror show on every week with all these amazing actresses, and I'm still too bored to watch it? Right. And, like, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford are two of my favorite— humans right. like I love them They're, and it is a wild like history and story like they were just bitches mm-hmm. <laughs> and they like got a lot of shit done and they were major artists it's like a really fascinating thing that two people who were that successful hated each other so much but I don't know this just isn't a compelling show well it also just seems like the pilot at least the the message I was getting is that this is going to be a show about, you know, the constraints of Hollywood, the constraints of being an aging actress in Hollywood. And and but yet it's being packaged to us as a show about their feud. Mm-hmm. And it's like, is this a show about them fighting each other or is this a show about them fighting Hollywood and how it was run at the time? And it's like, can you have it both ways? I don't know. <laughs> so It seems like he's marketing it as a show about them fighting each other. But then like sort of anticipating the criticisms of that is trying to, like, have his cake and eat it, too, and also have it be about, like, the larger issue of women in Hollywood at the time. And I'm like, Ryan, you got to pick your lane. You just can't have both. I just don't think Joan Crawford would have been, like, going to the library and getting— Is that what really happened? Did she send her assistant to go to the library to pick up books on women and then say, like, I need a strong story? Like, I think Joan Crawford would have— I don't know. No, that's why we both separately without consulting each other use the word ham-fisted. <laughs> it is. It's like, come on. Just feels like literally someone with ham fists. Yeah. It's like it might as writing. well be it might as well be a whole show of women like looking into the mirror and like like <laughs> yeah. it's looking Pulling at the wrinkles on their, on their face with like dramatic music playing. Yeah. Like that's uh, the show. Yeah. You just made a show, Hazel. <laughs> Congratulations. Directed by Ryan Murphy, written by Ryan Murphy, produced by Ryan Murphy. (laughs) Women stare into mirrors. Yeah. I mean, I would prefer that. (laughs) I wouldn't mind, you know, if these were 40-minute episodes of just alternating between just a straight shot of Jessica Lange staring into a mirror and then right after a completely exactly the same, but it's Susan Sarandon. I would watch the fuck out of that. That's very like Maya Darren. That would be fucking amazing. Let's make this show. More Lady Problems after this break. And now we have the return of our favorite segment, Fucked Up Movies About Women in a Good Way of the Week, the special Women's Strike edition. This week we watched Norma Rae. We all fucking loved it. I cried. My boyfriend cried. I cried too. Oh my uh, God. When did I you didn't cry? cry? I cried a the lot. last 20 minutes. Like several. Oh yeah. When she says bye to Ruben, hysterics. By the way, Ruben could get it. So oh I. my God. We were just talking about that. I was like, yeah, I would join your game. Okay, but first we should backtrack before we get into this and talk about what this movie is actually about. <laughs> Hazel. 
so Norma Ray is this incredible movie from 1979, and it stars Sally Fields as Norma Ray, a textile worker uh, working in a factory in North Carolina, who, with the help of a labor organizer from New York named uh, Ruben Wachowski, played by Ron Liebman, <laughs> they unionize the factory. Whatever it is, I didn't do it. Norma, you've got the biggest mouth in this mill. Give us a longer break. Give us more smoking time. Give us a Kotex pad machine. Do it, now shut up. And the movie is actually based on the true story of Crystal Lee Sutton, who worked for the textile company J.P. Stevens in the 70s. And she was actually fired for trying to unionize her employees. And she was harassed and threatened, like just like Sally Fields is in the movie. Um, and she eventually became a paid organizer for the... Uh, amalgamated clothing and textile workers union. Oh god, I was um, wondering what happened to her because at the end you don't find out. I was really worried. <laughs> the end is no, really she, like Crystal Lee Sutton like what became like an insane like labor organizer, okay, like good. famous labor organizer. Yeah, yeah. This movie was incredible. It's so satisfying. Yeah, beginning to end, like every moment. I love everyone in it so much. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think. There is something really satisfying about watching, like, a woman just get it done. Mm-hmm. She's just, like, she's super stressed. She's got, like, a thousand kids. She's got, <laughs> like, a kind of whatever husband, even though he's also kind of hot. Um, but just doing it anyway, it's so, so satisfying. But, yeah, I guess the biggest scene in the movie and the one that kind of has lasted through time since 1979 is this climactic scene where she's just gone through this whole union process and has had to convince people to get on board and has been handing out flyers and she's working, you know, her regular job and then also on top of it working like eight hours a day towards the union. And she goes in and she has to they, – they put a bulletin on the bulletin board basically trying to um, break up solidarity within the workers who are trying to unionize. And she's writing it down. And as she's writing it down, her bosses come up to her and they're like, girl, you can't write this down. You're going to get kicked out of this fucking factory <laughs> and we'll, like, arrest you. And she gets up on, on a table – and writes, like, scribbles union on this cardboard box and then just holds it up. And then one by one, all of the textile workers turn off their machines. And it's, like, it's true that even knowing that that scene was going to happen, like, I still cried like a little baby. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yeah, you get that union. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) Get that strike. Sally Fields is just so great. She's just like Ugh. so like spunky and like she's you immediately so love her and want her to get everything I love she Sally. needs and wants in the world. And, and she has the best hair in this movie. She has um, – at the end of the movie, when the labor organizer leaves, they kind of like have a yeah. thing going on. Mm-hmm. And he like gets to the end and he's like, thank you so much for your hair. And yeah. I was like, yep. <laughs> yes. Exactly he's right. like your shiny hair. <laughs> your shiny hair. <laughs> what amazing hair. <laughs> And, like, this is completely the opposite of the point. I do want to return to Ruben because <laughs> I was really distracted by how much I was attracted to this movie. And he's got a very young Mandy Patinkin vibe going on. <laughs> and my boyfriend was like, what is it with you and these, like, extremely, like, smart, like, New York Jews who, like, have, who are Why stubborn? Why wouldn't there be something with you, an extremely <laughs> yeah, smart I mean, New York but Jew? But it's, like, this hyper-specific, like, type of man that I've actually he's- never dated. He's, like, got a great, like, craggy face. Yes. It's, like, ugh, hot. Yes. He and Sally. Sally is also really oh, hot. she looks so she's good. so good. Yeah. Her little T-shirts. 
Oh, she's rocking yeah. it. The whole movie, it's kind of a turn on. Like it the is. whole like that was the subtext of this movie yeah. is that union organizing is really hot. It's sexy. But it's I, so sexy. I will say though, like I, the movie, even if there was a little something going on between them, it didn't feel like a love story. And it also didn't feel like he was kind of like a savior, even though he was more intellectual yeah. and like came from, you know, the big city. Like it was clear when especially when you hear from a bunch of people who work in the factory that this it wasn't just I don't know they're not like country bumpkins like they're people with right they're workers yeah yeah, and this is something they obviously did want and really benefited from but I just liked that it wasn't he wasn't condescending Mm -hmm. it wasn't it wasn't like a savior narrative. Like if anyone saved anyone, it was Norma Ray. Right. Yeah. And also I, re- I rarely see like a Jewish character whose thing is being Jewish without it being like vaguely offensive. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Mm-hmm. Like they made a lot of like he was talking about like mitzvahs and like all this stuff. And I kept being like waiting to cringe. No, but it was just adorable. But it's like I think that's one of the things that really works in its favor is that it treats the differences between those characters as being just like products of different cultures mm-hmm. you know what I mean they're they're equals but they're from different places yeah. and I also really appreciate that even though there is like a tension and a chemistry there, it isn't the movie's not a romance you know it's not the story is like about the effort to get this yeah this work done you know and it's, it's like they develop sort of a rapport out of doing something together but that's like a very different thing than what I think happens in I don't know, a lot of movies about women's work where it's just like, and now she gets a husband too. Right. Yeah, I mean. Her husband, her marriage was like very, like not a big deal. It was just like, okay, she's married now. Yeah, yeah. She marries another guy. Right, yeah. But also I I loved how non-judgmental the movie was to everyone in in the film. Like even her dad, I think, and you know, who was obviously like a very flawed character. They were, the movie was sympathetic towards him at the same time. I think just sort of you understood where he was coming from, even though he was being extremely shady to Norma. Um, they were the movie was very non-judgmental about Norma's own past. Like the people in the movie were judgmental, but the movie itself didn't like pass any sort of value judgment on her behavior. Ooh, yeah, that was another big cry scene for me when mm-hmm. she explains to her kids um, what she she's arrested after the the union on the table moment, and after she comes back, she has to explain to her kids what's happened and has to explain to them that there will be rumors about her that they're going to hear. And just, like, very matter-of-factly kind of goes through and says, like, your dad is different from your dad. I didn't know this person that well. You know, if you hear this about me, I want you to hear it from me first. And you can make your own judgments about how that goes. And I just think that's such a humane way to treat a character and so calm, too. You know, like, it's it's a very generous movie both in its time and in the way that it treats its characters. It reminded me of what uh, Teo just said about women's work and that, like, I don't know, the scene where they give her a promotion. Yeah, she gets a promotion and they give it to her because she's been complaining so much. But at the end of the day, it's not enough. Like, she needs to harness, like, the collective power of, like, her coworkers to make real change because just because she gets a promotion doesn't mean that the the insane problems where they work have, you know, gone away. And I don't know. I feel like recently there's been obviously a resurgence, um, you know, with the Donald Trump presidency of like marches and we're having the strike, obviously. And it's a lot of like women coming together to enact change uh, 
in a way that feels, you know, kind of 70s. Like I remember Leah was talking about the march. Uh, Leah Beckman was talking about the march and noted how it, it could have easily been sort of like a throwback 70s, 60s thing. And I don't know, this this movie felt especially important um, in terms of like not emphasizing the individual. Basically, Norma Ray feels important right now when women are sort of coming together and not just women, immigrants, laborers, people, you know, marginalized people are coming together, marching, striking, and not just worrying about themselves. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's a perfect thing to watch if you're striking today. Uh, just pull it up on Vimeo because it's not fucking available anywhere. There's oh, only on Vimeo a Spanish subtitle. The man trying to keep us down. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about. Yeah, we're going to talk about this in a future episode. But we've had a lot of trouble finding um, older movies about women online or anywhere. Like you have to go buy. A yeah, DVD. when we thought that we couldn't find Norma Ray, it was funny. We went through like a list of other women's organizing movies to talk about, and Silkwood isn't available. Harlan County, USA, isn't available. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these sort of like landmarks and you know, women's storytelling, like, just are gone. Yeah. They're not there. You're right. The man's trying to keep us down. They don't want us to strike. <laughs> they don't want us to know how to organize like Norma Ray. Thank you so much to my co-host, Teo Bugby. Thank you. And Hazel Sills. Thank you. I'm Rachel Handler, and thank you so much for listening to Lady Problems. And we want to listen to you, so follow us on Twitter at Lady Problems Pod, where you can ask us about a lady problem you're having, or leave us a message on the Lady Problems hotline at 205-677-5239. That's 205-677-LADY. And if you like this episode, please be sure to give us a rating or leave us a review on iTunes. Or you can recommend Lady Problems on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook using the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y pod. It's a new way to share podcasts you love, and the hashtag has some great tips for teaching the technologically challenged in your life how to find and download podcasts. Not to tech shame anyone out there. We all had to learn about podcasts from someone. So try pod, and we'll see you next week. And to all our fellow women striking, I'll see you in the streets. We'll see you there. We'll see you there in the in in those streets that I just mentioned. Thank you. <laughs> This episode of Lady Problems was produced by Mukta Mohan, Michael Catano, James T. Green, and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. <laughs>